early let us turn to thee. That reminds me that next week we spring forward, so be ready to come what will seem like an hour early uh, to the 11 o'clock service, so you'll be arriving when we are leaving. So this is the fourth Sunday of Lent, and uh, we are... As we approach Holy Week, we come to this this Sunday when our lectionary schedule of readings, that that Christian interdenominational uh, three-year cycle of scripture readings that many churches share, not all though, it's not a requirement. In fact, we don't follow it all the time, but it is a, a tool that can allow us to join with Christians all over the world of many different traditions in focusing on the same story, the same scripture, as we worship together on any given Sabbath. Uh, So today, the fourth Sunday of Lent, is traditionally a day where if we were looking at the New Testament lesson, we would hear the story of the prodigal son, or maybe the waiting father, or whatever. There are many different names for that story, the, the dysfunctional family, I've heard it called. Uh, It is, for many of us, our favorite story. It is our story. It is a story in which we find ourselves, uh, the the recovery of the one who was lost, the bringing home, the reconciliation, uh, amazing illustration by Jesus of the heart of God, the depth of grace. Today I'm going to not preach exactly on that. We're going to go into the Old Testament and look at the book of Joshua. Joshua, uh, the first book after the the Pentateuch. So um, the the first what we would call of the history books that tells the story of how the Israelites came into the promised land. And so it's the story of the promise to Abraham finally being fulfilled. How is God faithful to that fulfillment? How does it happen? And and it's also a story of new leadership. Joshua has replaced Moses, a new generation. Joshua, the, the name Joshua means the Lord saves. That's Joshua in Hebrew. Of course, in, in the Greek, it's Jesus. And so through the years, Christians have seen this connection between Jesus and Joshua. But despite the book's importance, in many ways, it's an awful story. It's a terrible story of conquest, of violence, such as we see every day in the news. People that want someone else's land and fight about it. And so it leads us to difficult questions. What kind of a God sanctions that? Where is God in that? And is this the same God who is the Abba Father of Jesus, the same God who we see in the story of the prodigal son? not going to directly answer all of that, but perhaps we'll get to that as we go along. The people of Israel are situated on the border of the promised land. They're about two miles from Jericho, where they will first encounter 
the indigenous people. And before they go in to start doing battle in Jericho, this event happens that we will read today. So let us now listen for the word of God. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt, so that that place where they were is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land. The the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on that day, and they ate the produce of the land. The Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Cana that year. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So some of you might remember that series of television commercials a year or more ago. I think it was AT&T who sponsored it. It featured a winsome young man who comes into a classroom or maybe a library and sits at a child's table with little, maybe three or four little children, and he engages them in friendly conversation, a, a series of questions. And of course, the questions are sort of leading to the conclusion that we should all buy AT&T products. Uh, But the, the real message of the teaching is that if one thing is good, then two is even better. Uh, So it's the idea that big is better, that more is better, faster is better. In a way, it is the, the subtext of the American story. It's the subtext, well, maybe the the blatant promise of many of our politicians who are campaigning these days, that we can can take control of our destiny again, that we can make our lives completely secure and everlastingly prosperous. All it takes is the right leadership and just to be more productive and, the, and we'll figure it out together. Well, since I've been at Riverside, it's getting close to five years now, I've tried to be pretty productive. And uh, I look at you, you're, you're very productive people. I mean, the people around here, I mean, they're hardworking people. They get things done. I don't mean just in church. I mean all over the place. I mean, uh, the people that live in Ortega, and Avondale, and Riverside, and San Marco, and wherever else your neighborhood is, if I haven't mentioned you. you you're productive people. You, you get things done. And so I was thinking about the, the people who first heard Joshua's story. They lived in Babylon. See, the story of Joshua came together during the time when the Israelites, the, the, the Hebrew people, were, were in exile, living in Babylon. And they, in that new culture, decided they were going to be very productive. They weren't going to just sit by. They were going to 
take charge of their lives, they were going to try to get ahead in the Babylonian system. And so they, they dreamed about things bigger and faster and better. They hustled and they learned and they invested and they hustled some more. They were willing to participate in the greed and the anxiety and the violence of that empire in order to get ahead and make life good for themselves in Babylon. And then, right in the middle of all of that busyness, a prophetic voice was heard. It was the voice of Joshua. A prophet, you say? Yes, Joshua is the first book of what we call the former prophets. He's a prophet because he looks back at Moses. He looks back at the Torah, and he calls the people to refer back to the Torah as the standard uh, by which Israelite society must be judged. So he's a prophet. And in the middle of the Babylonian lifestyle, he raises these questions, or his, his writing, his story, raises these questions among the Hebrews. Remember when we had nothing Remember when we were wandering? Remember that? You remember way back centuries earlier when we were slaves and then freed and then wandering and our lives were so fragile and vulnerable. We were landless. We had no legal standing anywhere. We wandered in the desert one day at a time did we get our food. It was the same food all the time, but God always seemed to provide one day at a time. You remember? And do you remember Joshua, mighty Joshua, how he led us around the Edomites, even though the Edomites, they wouldn't welcome us, because even though that we were related to them through Esau, but they pushed us on. And so we went up through around the Moabites and then the Amorites, and we, we kept going. And finally, Joshua led us right to the edge of the promised land. Remember that? Didn't it seem like God was working in all of that? And, and then when we got right to the edge, we stopped at this place, and Joshua said, we're going to celebrate a Passover here before we go any farther. We're going to have a meal of memory before we go into that promised future, into that place of blessedness. We're going to remember who we are. We're going to have um, that Passover meal. And he said it was the place where our disgrace was rolled away. In fact, that's what the word Gilgal means in Hebrew, rolled away. So we have a place that we know we can go to, we can point to it on a map, we can remember a time we were there, and it's called rolled away. Our shame 
our humiliation was rolled away. I wonder if that's almost a precursor to being able to enter the promised land and live in it without becoming like the Babylonians, without managing it like Pharaoh, just trying to control it, trying to use it up, trying to make it fit our needs, running over whatever people might be in our way. I wonder if Joshua was saying, you need to get in touch with how your disgrace has been rolled away before you can really know how to manage the gift you're about to receive. I wonder if the Hebrews even got it. We look at their history, and when they actually went into the promised land, it wasn't always a very pretty picture, was it? It was a story of violent conquest. It was also a story of gradual assimilation of a few good kings and a lot of bad ones, a lot of times of not only blessedness, the milk and the honey, but also of temptation and failure. And so Joshua wanted the people to stop before they went in and have a meal that reminded them who they were, reminded them of their circumcision, reminded them that this land that was now theirs was not theirs because they earned it or deserved it, wasn't theirs to use just as they felt best. They were given this land as gift. They were given this land to, uh, to be stewards of it. So I'm thinking about our place of blessedness. We're, a, we're, we're people who live in a, in a promised land. And, and you could think of that literally or figuratively. We are people who have tasted milk and honey. And I wonder where our Egypt is, our place of disgrace those times in our lives before we got here where we felt the absence of grace, disgrace, where we felt shame or humiliation. I I can certainly think of stories in my own life, mainly in relationships with people, people that I cared about, that I was close to mostly, where I felt those emotions of humiliation, or maybe whether it was I who did it to someone else or done to me, whether I was at fault or someone else or no one, it's almost beside the point. But thinking back to those times, those regrets, can you undo all of that? Can you change history? Could Israel erase The 400 years of slavery, of course not. 
But how can you receive the good news that God wants to give us until we come to terms with the disgrace of the past? The fact is that Joshua tells the Hebrew people God is dealing with it. God has rolled it aside. And so the Hebrews are called to remember their story in a new way. Not as victims, not as abandoned, as orphans, as landless wanderers, but as people who are the objects of grace. People who are deeply loved by God. And now in Babylon, they are still loved, and God is still faithful. God has not turned God's back on them. And all of this is gift. It is a sacramental offer of God's goodness. So in spite of the awfulness of of much of the Joshua story of violent conquest, the theological claim of Joshua is that despite all of the problems and failures and shame of the past, God is faithful to the Hebrews to heal them and bring them into the land that God promised them. That God will fulfill in, in God's time what, what has been promised. To put it another way, the claim of Joshua is that what the Hebrews were trying to do in Babylon to live as if big is better and more is better and faster is better, that that, that is revealed as a lie. And Joshua calls the Hebrews living in exile to return to their roots, to live as Jews, not as Babylonians. For us, it's to live as Christians, not in a as rat race consumers and producers. Be a gospel person. Act baptized or circumcised, if it were back then. I thought about Riverside, our budget, our programs, our staff, our marvelously talented choirs and musicians and and all of us thinking about our dreaming for the future. And I think about us perhaps as a carrier of this story, a carrier of this promise that God is faithful, that God has removed the stone of our humiliation. It has rolled away. And now we are a venue where people can return to faith, can remember that their life is a gift. They can practice mercy. They can roll away the shame of others. And they can enjoy the milk and honey that God wants to give us.
Now, that carries with it a, a, a danger. It's seen in the prodigal son story because we've been talking about the return of the prodigal, you could say, but what about that elder brother? What about the brother who's been enjoying the fullness of life all along, who's had the milk and honey in, in the house of his father all along, and now has come to believe that it's his by merit. He deserves it. He has a right to it. He has a right to even more of it. He should be in charge of it. Do only hungry people seek God? Are sated people still able to listen? Do those who enter into the promised land still have an openness to seek God, to see their lives as graced and not earned? This is the open question of Joshua. How will we manage the gift? And it is the time of Lent to think about such things. The faithfulness of God underneath all that we have and the markings of this sacrament as a sign of how impossible it would be to purchase and earn what we have. We come not as wage earners and land owners to this table of grace. We come as those who remember who we really are. Those who have received a promise, who's the promise fulfilled, now eating a new menu, a menu of grace where the disgrace has been removed. Thanks be to God.